This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Today we have an interview with one of the great screenwriters of all time uh, who wrote a movie, a couple movies actually, that um, I'm sure you've seen in love. He is a great guy and the protector of a franchise that has still not been plundered for future reboots sequels, prequels, reimaginings, whatever you want to call them. He is Bob Gale, and the movies, of course, are the Back to the Future movies. And because of the coming reissue, uh, we got the unique opportunity to speak with him about screenwriting, about how he found his stride in the industry, about what inspired him initially, and you have to stay all the way to the end. I mean, you always do, but this time particularly, because he gave, I, I always ask people what their, you know, one piece of advice they would give to people up and coming filmmakers. And he gave, I think, the best answer that I've ever heard. Um, so I don't want to spoil it, but, and I love a lot of the answers from all our guests, but this answer was something that was so pure and connected with me at least on the level that i feel matters uh like boils it all down um but he really uh he just has a great story and he's worked with the giants of this industry at a time when the modern industry was really being born in the 1980s the blockbuster tentpole industry of movie making and uh i mean can you does it get more like I, I i think i say in the interview with him but back to the future is just a screenwriting swiss watch like it's just so tight and so well put together and everything serves the themes the story and um you know i could have talked to him much much longer about all the things that make the film amazing and where that all came from but i tried to do my best in the time we had and i am so grateful to him uh for giving us the time so i really hope you enjoy it um whether you're interested in screenwriting you love movies or you just want to hear uh the rare opportunity to listen to one of the greats behind one of the great movies talk about it so enjoy Usually the thing I like to start with, with anybody we have on, is just asking, you know, what was the, at the beginning for you, what kind of drew you down the path of becoming a screenwriter and being in this medium or telling stories? Well, I guess I really have to give credit to um, the Walt Disney TV show that I grew up watching in the 50s and the 60s. Um, uh, this Which was uh, Walt Disney's. Well, first it was called Disneyland, then it was called uh, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Yes, um, yeah. Uh, I, I may have had some other name in there, but it was on Sunday every Sunday night uh, at uh, six thirty Central Time, which is where I lived in the Central Time Zone, St. Louis. And <clears throat> I loved, uh, I loved all the Disney movies when I was a little kid. And when this show was on, there was Walt Disney himself. It wasn't just this name that you saw on the screen. It was this guy. And he was really cool. He was <laughs> like this uncle you wished you had. And he was telling you about how he made these movies, about his theme park, about um, animation, uh, it was a primer in filmmaking for people that knew absolutely nothing about it. And so for, you know, a seven or eight year old kid in St. Louis watching this, it was, you know, it was staggeringly great. 
then there was, uh, after school, uh, there was the Woody Woodpecker show. Uh, and Walter Lance, the creator of Woody Woodpecker, uh, he always did a segment. And he showed how animation worked. And I was fascinated by that. And I, I learned to draw by copying pictures out of Disney uh, picture books. Uh, you know, I learned about animation, making my own little flip books. Uh, and Walt Disney in particular, and Walter Lance to a smaller degree, um, these guys were, were big heroes to me. Uh, and then as I got a little bit older, I'm seeing the Ray Harryhausen movies. Uh, I'm reading Mad Magazine. Uh, I'm watching Looney Tunes. Uh, you know, I'm learning more about, uh, I'm, re I'm reading comic books, uh, first DC and then Marvel. Uh, and all this stuff, Ray, watching the Twilight Zone, huge influence on me, uh, the Twilight Zone. Uh, reading Ray Bradbury and all kinds of great uh, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, uh, all these great science fiction writers. All this stuff is, uh, you know, coming together in this uh, weird uh, potpourri uh, stew of my brain. Uh, the Republic movie serials that they're running on sure. reruns. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Commando Cody. Uh, I, I love Commando Cody. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the first the first time I started making movies in high school, uh, we did a Commando Cody spoof. So, you know, that's that's the usual the usual route is that yes. you start making a, a spoof of something that you really love. And um, uh, and then it, it grows from there. It grows and, from and there. So did you know, so animation was like, a, was really, it sounds like animation and, and comics and that sort of world was the first step. And then it sort of grew. That out. was the first step. And then I also like creative writing. I do remember in grade school, uh, how much I enjoyed, uh, when, uh, we were assigned, okay, you need to write a story about something. And then everybody would get up and read their story. And when I got up to read my story, I knew that my classmates were always excited all right, what's Gail got today? What's he got this week? You know, so. Uh, I, I had that experience too. That was the pinnacle of my writing career. <laughs> <laughs> but I did have that. I remember that feeling too. It was great. It, it was, was like, great. oh, he's, he's going to have something good, this guy. Yeah. Right. And that, so that's your first audience experience that you can make an audience react. So so that was, that was really cool. Uh, so... Um, and then, so, but you went to film school. So you were in that first, you went, right? You went to USC. And I did, but. Kind of among those early, those early folks. Yes, I was. But interestingly enough, I didn't even know about film school when I was in high school. Uh, I, as I say, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I was a Sputnik kid. Everything yeah. was math and science, math and science, math and science. And I was yeah. good in math and science. So the, the uh, guidance counselor said, Oh, you're good in math and science. You should go into engineering. Well, okay, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. You know, maybe I should go. Maybe I should go in the army and have that experience. My parents yeah. said, "No, you're not going in the army. You're going to college." <laughs> so, where do you want to go to college? Well, um, this was an interesting decision that I made. Um, I decided I would go to college because so my parents said you can go anywhere within a 700 mile radius of St. Louis. So I said. I want to go to Tulane in New Orleans because I want to see the Mardi Gras. Mm. <laughs> that was interesting that was, choice. Yeah, no well, fun. <laughs> which turned out that was that was a pretty good that was a pretty good criteria for yeah. choosing a college. <laughs> I got to see the Mardi Gras. Yeah, okay, it was neat. I'm glad I saw it. Um, but I didn't like engineering at all. And there was a kid in my dorm, also in engineering, who was also an amateur filmmaker, and he said, you know. They have film schools in California, and if you were to make your hobby into your career, then it wouldn't feel like you were going to work. I said, well, that's interesting. So I rode away to USC and UCLA and NYU for their catalogs, and I saw these lists of these classes uh, and, you know, introduction to cinema and, you know, sound 203 uh, 
and cinematography 307, th- these classes sound a whole lot better than organic chemistry. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm, I'm there. Uh, you know, my parents were cool enough to say, okay, these are wow. accredited universities. Let them get yeah. it out of its system. And <laughs> I got into USC and, uh, not get it out of your system. <laughs> I, I did not get it out of my system. I met I met Bob Zemeckis my junior year, and uh, uh, we were uh, there were fifty kids in our class, and only about ten of us were undergrads. Uh, so Zemeckis and I gravitated towards each other because we were both from the Midwest, and uh, we were both undergraduates, and we both thought, "Hey, we want to make Hollywood movies, not not art films, uh, not right. documentaries," and uh, we just hit it off and we decided that uh, uh, it would be more fun to take this journey together than to try to do it separately. That's and, and did you guys have that shared? So a lot of you mentioned like your influences, the stuff you loved that was kind of inspired you creatively. Oh, was yeah. He, did, yeah did, he he was, did you guys have that shared sort of like, I mean, I assume the answer is yes. But yes, absolutely. Curious. No, Bob was totally into, into Disney. Um, yeah. He was he was in. The first movie uh, that I saw twice was The Great Escape. Um, uh-huh. And I remember my father said, what, you're going to see it again? What, you think it's going to turn out differently? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I bought the soundtrack album. And Bob Zemeckis was the first person in my life I met who also had the soundtrack album, The Great Escape, which made as huge an impression on him as it made on me. So, yeah, we just we were clearly soulmates. We had the same influences, you know. We and you wrote together in the beginning, right? You yeah, were writing we together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. how quickly, what were the steps that, you know, because you guys, things started happening very fast, right? Right out of school and like the, what was the, the first project, you know, you guys wrote? Well, the first thing that we decided to work on, we thought, okay, we don't want to work our way up. We want to just go off and make a movie. And the way to do that was to make some kind of a, exploitation movie. So I told Bob, I had this idea uh, uh, about a horror movie uh, that would involve a whorehouse uh, where the, the prostitutes were vampires. And the, um, this was the movie that became Bordello of Blood. And the gimmick was that the whorehouse was in the upstairs of a funeral parlor and the vampires slept in the coffins in the showroom in the daytime. And at <laughs> night, the clients went upstairs and they got more sucked than they thought they were going to get sucked. <laughs> um, it works. So we, thought, oh. <laughs> so we started writing this script uh, before we even got out of film school. And within a month or two of, uh, of our graduating, uh, we had this script. And we were running around with the script, uh, taking it to every low-budget producer in town uh, and getting in the door with it, um, uh, not getting it made, but at least yeah. it was a good calling card. Uh, uh, Bob Zemeckis had also made an Academy Award student, Academy Award-winning student film called The Field of Honor. He was going around with that. And we also decided that we'd write a more uh, legitimate uh feature film, which we did and got it to John Milius. Milius was the uh, the legendary uh, author of Apocalypse Now. Uh, he just made uh, the movie Dillinger and The Wind and the Lion. And He's a huge, huge figure. Yeah. 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 At yeah. Time and, and in general. Yeah. And Conan, for, later Conan and everything. Yes. For, for your listeners uh, who have not seen the documentary Milius, which I believe can be found on Netflix or Amazon streaming. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know what filmmaking was like in the 70s, watch that. It's it's just a fabulous, fabulous documentary. I love, um, the, I love the recommendation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so Milius was a USC graduate. And so that gave us a calling card to go in and knock on his door and said, hey, John, uh, we're, we're from USC. And we wrote this script and we wonder if you'd read it. So John said, okay. And he read it and he called us back into his office and he said, boys, uh, <laughs> I like this script. 
It has a great sense of social irresponsibility. Uh, <laughs> it was about guys. That's definitely his vibe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it was about these guys that use a Sherman tank to to uh, shake down an oil company by holding the Standard Oil building in downtown Chicago for ransom. So nice. it was a pretty crazy, uh, insane thing. And he said, uh, he said, uh, he just made the win in the line, like I said, and MGM had offered him a four picture, given him a four picture deal, two projects that he would produce and two that he would write and direct. So he told us about this and he said, uh, he said that he wanted to do for us what Francis Coppola did for him. And he said, I will hire you to write uh, a script. Uh, do you have any other ideas? And we told him that we had come across this fascinating historical event, uh, which during uh, February of 1942, the city of Los Angeles uh, thought that they were being attacked by uh, Japanese aircraft uh, in the yes. early days of World War II. The city was blacked out, and for five hours, anti-aircraft guns in the city shot at the sky at absolutely nothing. It was a false alarm. <laughs> and we said, this, there's something here that makes us think that there's some kind of crazy comedy that could be done. And Milius was, uh, being a history buff, he was very familiar with this, and he had uh, written or was working on a script about General Joseph Stilwell, uh, who was stationed in Los Angeles during December of uh, 1941, and he said, "Well, let's do this. Let's set, let's set the movie uh, in the first week after Pearl Harbor in Los Angeles. Uh, we'll have Stillwell in it, and um, you know, go come. Let's uh, let's put our heads together and come up with something." Um, so we did, and that script became 1941. Yes, directed and by Steven Spielberg. Directed by well. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> and Milius and Spielberg were good friends. And Milius was telling Spielberg about these two crazy guys that he met <laughs> from USC. Uh, and they had written this script where we blew up Pacific Ocean Park and had a Ferris wheel rolling down the Santa Monica Pier and a dogfight over Hollywood Boulevard. And Spielberg, of course, was one of the few people in Hollywood that could make a movie like this. And he said, John, I got to read this. I got to read this. I got to read this. So Stephen reads the script and he wants to make it because this was not what you do. This is not what they tell you to do when you write your first script or an early script. Uh, to Go write. as big as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't make it impossible. But the fact that right. it was impossible was what made Stephen want to do it. So Stephen said, I want to do this movie after I do Close Encounters, which he was set up to do. Stephen actually flew us down to Mobile, Alabama, where we, he was shooting um, Close Encounters. And we did rewrites uh, on 1941 and got to watch Stephen shoot Close Encounters uh, at the same time. So it that must was, have uh, been such an exciting time. You were in the thick of it, all of you. Absolutely. Francois Truffaut was there. I mean, yeah. it was crazy great. It was just fabulous. And, and you were all, I think that, you know, people, like for the younger people, you were all, from what we know, you know, having interviews and countless things that all of you have done, you guys were all kind of of a like mind in terms of those influences that you originally mentioned, you know, things like we know Star Wars and, and Spielberg and Lucas and Republic serials and things like that. These were all filtering into the kind of work you guys were doing and certainly the work you were about to do. No question. Plus, there was this there was this amazing camaraderie that I don't know if it exists anymore with the next generation. Um, but everybody it was seem to, but yeah, no, every, everybody was trading points. Yeah. I mean, that was what was amazing. You know, Stephen, um, Stephen gave George a point of, of close encounters. George gave Stephen a point of, of, uh, star Wars, uh, Brian De Palma, contributed to Close Encounters. Bob and I wrote a couple of scenes of Close Encounters. Uh, Barwood and Robbins wrote a couple of scenes of Close Encounters. Everybody helped everybody else on, out on their movies. And That idea of, pa of paying that forward, like when you said that Millie has said, I'm going to do for you what Coppola did for me. There was so much of like, not to reference the movie, but like godfathering one another through the business that, because Spielberg would soon produce the movie that 
we have to start talking about now, which is Back to the Future, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and how soon did Back to the Future, like this is, you know, one of the seminal movies uh, of, of the age, one of the classics. Um, it's like a near perfect script, if there can be such a thing. Um, and I'm curious, you know, 1941 was huge, a huge endeavor and gamble for everyone involved. And 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 I'm curious, how quickly did you and, and Zemeckis come to this other idea where did it come from and and how quickly was spielberg steven spielberg involved well we need we need to go back just a little bit okay because yes. we've written we come up with this idea for a movie uh, that became i want to hold your hand about kids trying to crash the beatles appearance on the ed sullivan's show in 1964 and right which is a little bit of a, another rewriting of history there's a little thread here i see that exactly of, like, Little exactly. corners in history you're looking at, but go go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which then becomes realized even more so with Forrest Gump. Um, right. So clearly, this is something that uh, that is going through our psyches here, um, being an observer to history and telling history from the point of view of uh, of people standing on the sidelines. Uh, which I assume you guys are comic book fans, yes? Yes. Um, well, Marvels, right? Uh, Kurt Busiek's uh, seminal work, uh, which tells the story of the Marvel Universe from people standing on the sidelines, which I think is just a phenomenal, phenomenal miniseries. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a fascinating way to to recreate something superhuman, right? Right, from right, right, from the human perspective. So yeah, the Beatles were superheroes, and we're telling from the point of view of uh, of these young people. <clears throat> well, so anyway, we had we 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 were already. Uh, in business with Stephen on 1941, uh, doing these rewrites, and we then we wrote uh, we we wrote I want to hold your hand, and uh, Stephen said, well, you know, let me read it. You know, you guys written something new, let me read it. So Stephen reads it and he says, Bob Samakis, you you need to direct this. And Stephen says, Yeah, I know, Stephen, but how do I do it? Uh, at the time, Warner Brothers had an ironclad policy against first-time directors. So Stephen got himself involved, uh, got the movie set up over at Universal from Warner Brothers, and Stephen executive produced it, and this was Bob's first directing gig. Ne next project, uh, one night when we were working on 1941 with Milius, John told us this crazy idea he had about car salesmen uh, on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Uh, who uh, people would sell their cars to on their way into Las Vegas, then they'd lose all their money gambling uh, in Vegas, and then the, they'd go into the same car lot on their way out of Vegas, and these same car dealers would sell them uh, a shitty, a shittier <laughs> car. Uh, and we thought, okay, uh, this is a great, this is a great uh, idea for. Um, uh, for a movie, and we went to John and Stephen and said, "You guys are never going to make this. Why don't you let us make it?" And they said, "Okay." Used cars get set get set up at Universal. Universal doesn't make it, so we move it over to Columbia, and we make used cars at Columbia, kind of concurrently with uh, Spielberg in in post production on on 1941. Frank Price loved used cars. Came out in the summer. Of 1980, um, it didn't do well at the box office. But uh, Frank said, uh, "When you guys have your next idea, uh, I want to hear about it." Well, in promoting used cars uh, that summer, I went back to my hometown of St. Louis to do the you know local boy does good story. Yeah, and I found I was poking around in the basement. And I found my father's high school yearbook. Uh, I attended the same high school that my dad did, and I'd never come across his yearbook before. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting to see what my high school looked like in 1940. And thumbing through it, and I discovered that my father had been the president of his graduating class, something I had I knew nothing about. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this picture of my dad uh, looking very prim and proper and sober uh, and... Uh, I'm thinking to myself, gee, was my dad the same kind of guy that the president of my high school class was? Hmm. Because 
I didn't get along at all with the president of my high school class, you know, <laughs> school spirit, rah, rah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, I mean, I was, I was part of the student committee to abolish student government. That's, that's, <laughs> that's where my head was at. But I, I said, well, that would be interesting. What if, what if I had gone to high school with my dad? Would I have been friends with him? And boom, that's where the lightning bolt struck. For years prior to this, Zemeckis and I had been kicking around the idea of some kind of a time travel movie, but we'd never been able to find the hook. So when I came back to California, I said, Bob, I think I got the hook for this time travel movie. You know, what if we take a kid from today and he goes back in time 30 years and he ends up in high school with his dad? <laughs> and Zemeckis got real excited. He said, oh, that's great. And what if his yeah. mom went to the same high school and it turned out that all the stuff that mom said she never did with a boy, she did <laughs> all of it. Uh, and we just got cooking and cooking on this idea. Uh, so uh, after we had developed enough of it where we felt comfortable making a pitch, we called up Frank Price at Columbia and said, Frank, uh, we have a story we want to tell you. So we went to Frank's office and we started telling the story and we could see immediately that he got it. His, his face just lit up. He totally got it. And I remember Zemeckis wanted to keep telling him more and more scenes. And I kept sticking my elbow into him saying, you know, like, shut up. He, <laughs> don't tell him, you know, you might queer the deal. He's buying it. He's buying it. So, uh, so Frank, uh, Frank said yes. Uh, and this was uh, September of 1980. And we wrote our first two drafts at Columbia. They were dated uh, February 81 and April 81. Uh, they decided they didn't want to make the picture um, for whatever reason. Um, there's been many. Uh, the main one that we believe is that um, the comedy was moving towards a, a raunchier type of comedy. Yeah, uh, sure. That moment like, in time, there's the Caddy Shack. Animal yeah. House, Stripes, mm -hmm. Porkies, all that kind of stuff. And Back to the Future wasn't that. So um, they gave us the project back and Turnaround. And we went, we, Turnaround for anybody that doesn't know what that means. It means that the, that the filmmakers get the project back to set up someplace else with the assumption that if you do get it set up, um, the original studio gets their money back. So it's a good deal. Good yeah. deal for all concerned. So uh, we took this thing around to every studio and we either were told it's, it's uh, time travel, time travel doesn't make any money, which was true at the time, uh, or it's very nice, it's very sweet. Why don't you guys take this to Disney? Hmm. Um, and we heard the, why don't you take it to Disney so many times yeah. that we decided, well, what the hell, let's take it to Disney. <laughs> something that we don't know. Now, remember, this is the Disney uh, in the 80s. That so gave different. Us great yeah. movies like The Black Hole, right? So <laughs> we, uh, we... It was a different we, Disney. <laughs> yes, very different. Michael Eisner was not there yet. So yeah. we... Uh, uh, Michael Eisner, who passed on it at Paramount anyway, so it wouldn't matter. <laughs> Um, so, so we take this meeting, uh, with this executive at Disney, we go in his office and he looks at us in utter shock and horror. And he says, are you guys insane? Are you out of your minds to think that Disney would make <laughs> a movie about incest? You've got the kid and his mother in the car. This is incest. We don't do that here at Disney. Um, so it was too nice for everybody else, but it was it was too hard and dirty for Disney. Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin locking functionality. 
Every Element system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. It's so great to hear these stories about a film that is beloved by all, um, generation after generation, um, because people pass on great stuff. Like Absolutely. it's just not that's the that's the lesson. It's not just and it's not just movies. It's 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 ideas. It's inventions. You know, yes. you re- read the story about the guy that invented Federal Express. You know, it's it's an amazing story. He said we're going to have all planes go to Memphis. With, with their packages and go away. And, you know, so you're going to send a package from Los Angeles, San Francisco by way of Memphis. That doesn't make any sense. Well, actually it did make sense, but <laughs> it took people a long time to figure it out. Let's go back to Spielberg here because yeah. after we wrote back to the future, uh, Spielberg read it and he said, I love this. I'd love to get involved with this. And we said, Stephen, we've made, I want to hold your hand. We've made used cars in 1941 and none of these have done very well at the box office. We're concerned that if we make this with you and it bombs, we'll never get a job in town again because we'll just be known as those two guys that only work because of their buddy Spielberg. And Steven <laughs> said to us, you, you know what? You guys are probably right. Um, but if you change your mind, let me know. So uh, after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, Zemeckis is depressed. He wants to direct. And he says to me one day, look, I'm just going to take the first decent script that crosses my desk. And it was Romancing the Stone. So Zemeckis goes off and he makes Romancing the Stone. Turns out to be a big hit. Uh, Opens in uh, uh, February or March 1984. Uh, Everybody and their uncle wants to be in business with Bob Zemeckis. And they want to make whatever movie he wants to make. Uh, The movie he wants to make, of course, is Back to the Future. And... He says to me, Bob, let's make Back to the Future, not with any of my new Fairweather friends, but let's go make it uh, with the guy that always believed in it, Stephen. So Stephen had just set up Amblin Entertainment at Universal. At Universal, right. Yeah, and we became the very first Amblin movie in uh, spring of 1984. And truly, Amblin is almost an adjective now, and I think that you, all of you, built that in that that movie's tone is you know it's so funny hearing you talk about the origins because like uh too dirty for disney but everyone else is saying disney but that became almost its own thing that was created that like kind of middle ground there that uh, back to the future falls right in that was uh good for kids good for adults you know appealed across like both across ages you know and worked and and i just uh it's a it's a it's like you said, it's like sometimes it's hard to get people on board with something that's a little different. But once they do, wow. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, about a year ago, I think it was, The Atlantic did a story about uh, family movies of today versus family movies of the 80s. And they talked about Back to the Future, among other things. Uh, the Goonies was in there, a few other ones. Uh, these movies that had edge, they yes. were family oriented, but they had edge to them. And they were bemoaning the fact that family movies of today don't have that edge anymore, that it's, they're more homogenized, they're less controversial. Um, uh, and, it's, and it's an interesting dynamic uh, that nobody really has, I don't think, has that kind of problem with it. Although, you know, today, if we were making Back to the Future, they might, the studio might say, well, gee, it's kind of brutal seeing Doc Brown get gunned down at the Twin Pines Mall, um, you know. But he ha- it has to be brutal because it has to be so seared into Marty McFly's yes. uh, psyche that he has to be focused on how am I going to prevent this from happening. Um, it 
it's it's a it's a Swiss. I mean, not to clock puns, but it's a Swiss watch of story. I mean, there's no. I, I'm. I wish we could talk. I mean, I don't know how much more time you have, but I the um. There's so much about that script that seems. I mean, you went through many drafts, but that's just one example beyond just the complexities of how you created the time travel, how you rework it so well in the sequel. There are very few sequels that that revisit the same themes but add layers and you actually literally revisit the place and the moments and add a new layer to it um and i'm just fascinated by your writing process and and how you you know how you came to the finished product and um you know aside from the market demands which clearly yeah it's a totally different landscape now and uh the edge of, of there's dark, there's philosophical underpinnings to Back to the Future about the ideas of fate, the idea of, of, of whether or not you can change uh, destiny or, or free, free will. I mean, there's so much packed in there. Um, I don't, I guess that's not really a question, but I'm just, I want to know more about the writing process behind it. If you have, if you have anything thoughts wise. Well, sure. I mean, you know, for one thing, uh, first of all, you talked about, about the sense of place. Um, that was really important to us that Hill Valley, the town of Hill Valley is a character in all of these movies and the metamorphosis of a place. Uh, one thing that we're really proud of is that, you know, if, if you took somebody, you know, from New York city in 1950 and you put them in New York city in let's, let's say 2019 and avoid COVID here. Um, <laughs> um, you know, Fifth Avenue is still Fifth Avenue. Central Park is still Central Park. Yeah, yes. there's an awful lot of stuff that that would be way different over those 70 years, but uh, he'd be able to, this guy would be able to get around. He'd, the subway still go to the same place. So unlike in so many science fiction movies, you see where they tear, it's like they completely tear down the world Yes, um, yes. You know, Blade Runner, which I love, is supposed to be Los Angeles in, when is it, 2019 or something? Yeah, um, it's like just, just this but, year or something. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you look at it and you say, there's nothing in here that looks like Los Angeles. Yes, that's a great point. You guys put it, you put it in a place where he would know like 75 to 80% of the world. Yes. And there would just be those little things that were that were conspicuously off. Because we because that's not the way urban redevelopment works. We don't tear everything down. Um, yeah, there might be certain areas, you know, in New York City, yeah, they, they tear down a whole area and they turn it into Hudson Yards um, and nobody would know what the hell that was from 1950. But um, the rest of it, it's enough the same where you don't get lost. So the town square, it's, it's a park in 1955, it's a parking lot in 1985, um, it's a lake in 2015, yes. but it's still the square. It's yes. still recognizable. And and, and that, I, I have to ask, because thematically, I mean, save the clock tower is is part of that. And, and saving the marriage, the relationship of his parents or saving his father's um, confidence or building it. These are all tied to that same theme, like very easily, naturally tied to the idea of the square is still the square, but it's a little different. Um, is that an intentional choice from the beginning or does that, how does that magic happen in that story? Oh, it was an intentional choice. Absolutely. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite moments in the first movie, um, you know, you go back to 1955 and, um, you know, the, the, the town area is, is, is so much uh, nicer than it is in 1985. Yes, yes. Uh, and, but Marty comes back to 1985 at the end of the first movie, and he jumps out of the car, and he sees the bum sleeping on the bench. And he says, <laughs> oh, Red, you look great. Everything <laughs> looks great. It looks great. And, you know, the theater's a porno theater. But <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's what you're – the idea was that Bob and I felt that if you took a kid from the 80s and you stuck him in the 50s, he'd hate it. He wouldn't yeah. like it there. You know, we all look at it and say, oh, what a great place to live. But if you were 17 years old and you were there, you say, man, this place is all screwed up. I can't stand this. 
Yes. Um, I want to ask you also that, I mean, there's, I could ask so much about the way the scripts are constructed. Um, you've been extremely protective in this era of sequels, right? Of, of retreads, of reboots, of reimaginings, of whatever you want to call them. You've been very protective of Back to the Future. And I personally love that. I think Thank that's you. the best thing you could do. And it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's just whatever. I wish everybody was approaching it that way. Can you tell me about why and about um, what and tell our audience about, you know, part of the philosophy that you have behind those decisions? Um, because it's, you know, it's it's becoming like the only thing that hasn't been redressed today. Well, yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> um I think it's fortunate, actually, <laughs> I mean, well, that, that you it, held strong no, to that. No, but, it's yeah. fortunate that oh, we did. It's like, yes, unfortunate yes, that not, yeah. you know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, there's a lot of sequels that we really didn't need. And, yes, and this is true. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but everybody, <laughs> everybody has their list and you just kind of scratch your head and you say, did they really need to go there? Uh, did they really need to reboot that? Um, really? Uh, but no, we, when we finished part three, we, it says the end. It actually says the end. And we put that there consciously because even then we said, this is it. We're not doing this anymore. We've taken these characters uh, where they all need to go. If the audience wants to imagine other adventures, they're free to do that. And, you know, we did the, we did the Saturday morning animated cartoon show for CBS. Yeah. That was Doc Brown and his kids and his family. And, and that's fine for what it is. And of course, there's the, there's the IDW comic book series, which enhances uh, the trilogy uh, without uh, ruining it, without, uh, you know, breaking any of the, of the, of the laws of it, so to speak. Um, yeah. But we felt like, okay, we've done, we've done the movies. If we, if we go back in, we go back to this well, it's just not going to be as good. Bob and I were among those people that felt that after the Beatles broke up, they shouldn't get back together because the expectations for what it would be, they would never live up to it. And we just didn't think we'd be able to live up to um, more back to the future. And then, of course, as time goes by, you know, Michael J. Fox announces that he's got Parkinson's disease and he really can't do another back to the future movie. And who wants to see Back to the Future without Michael J. Fox? I can't imagine that. So instead, what we've done is uh, Back to the Future, the musical. And on the new, uh, on the new uh, 4K Blu-ray set, uh, we've got 30 minutes uh, dedicated to the musical, uh, which, uh, which ran for five weeks uh, in Manchester, England uh, in February, and uh, barring uh, a new COVID crisis will uh, resurrect in London in May of yeah. 20, 2021. And it's another medium. It's, it's sort of another like another medium. Yeah. It's another same medium. story. Yeah. It's the same story in another medium. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't tell you how excited Bob and I are about it. Oh, Bob, I'm excited. I didn't, Bob I didn't. actually had not gone to all the rehearsals. I was there the whole time. But Bob just kind of turned it over to me. And on opening night, he literally had tears in his eyes. He was so happy with how, how beautifully well it turned out. So if you're a Back to the Future fan, you are going to just love what we did with the musical. It's just fabulous. That's great. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think all the reasons you listed for not uh, doing Back to the Future 4 or Back to the Future re Redux with new actors or something are good reasons. And they're the same reasons so many other of your contemporaries or have just decided, yeah, that's OK. We're going to do it anyway. And I'm, I'm just amazed that you have had the wherewithal to say, like, no, we believe these reasons are good reasons. We're going to stick to this this decision because there was a lot of the ends, like you said, that people are like, yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of money to be made and we want to make another one. And it's fun. You know? well, <laughs> so they go well, ahead and they do true. it. But, but you know, uh, with, with all due respect to these filmmakers, some of them, you know, James Cameron did not control all the rights to the Terminator. True. And, yes. You know, 
he's after Terminator 2, you know, Cameron just washed his hands of that. Yes. You know, he said, if you want to see the Terminator, watch one and two and yes. forget everything else. So yes. <laughs> if he could have stopped, if he could have stopped more Terminator movies, I am certain he would have done that. Yes, so, that's a fair point. Yeah. So I don't, you know, let's not, whether, whether, whether Jim made money off of those or not, I'm sure he'd give every dollar back to not have those uh, bastardizations uh, uh, ruining uh, how his did you vision. Guys get, how did you, that's a great question though, especially because we're four filmmakers. How did you make sure to get the rights to control the future of this, of the property? Because well, we that's were, really wise. We were very fortunate uh, to be in business with a filmmaker uh, named Steven Spielberg. Yes. Uh, and the movie is a co-production between Amblin and Universal. So Amblin also has to agree to more Back to the Future. And Stephen is, you know, he's, he's a very honorable, he's a very honorable guy. He's yeah. not going to, you know, if we say to him, Stephen, we don't want any more Back to the Futures. He said, I get it. Okay. You, there yeah. won't be, uh, I'll stand, you know, I'll, I'll stand with you on that. That's, that's, that's not great. a problem. I, so, uh, you know, let's give Steven some credit for that. Yes. Yes. That's beautiful. I mean, I remember seeing quotes from him saying things like, I don't want to do, I don't want to direct any Jaws sequels. But then when Jurassic Park came, he said, I didn't do Jaws, so I'll do this one because I know people want it, you know. So I, I get the sense that he responds to these things sort of in kind, you know, as each as each situation presents itself, he seems to make decision he feels is best. And, and Right. And I'm sure that by you guys. Yeah. If it was up to Steven, uh, we would not have... We, we would not have those Jaws sequels. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I guess the only last thing I would ask is if you have, we always end on something like this. We have a lot of people who are trying to get started in our audience. Do you have any advice or if you had one piece of advice for someone starting out today in this very different world, of course, what would you, what would you say? Well, I can't begin to explain or understand how things get done today, because it is such a topsy-turvy world, especially when we throw uh, COVID into it all. Yeah. But what, but what I will say is that the, the rules of drama uh, have not changed. Um, and the reason that people are still watching Back to the Future today are the same reasons that people can still watch Romeo and Juliet today, because these are good, powerful human stories that address certain aspects of the human condition. And I would simply advise people to not worry about all the bells and whistles of stuff and to try to understand human drama. Because Romeo and Juliet works today because everybody's had the experience of their parents saying, you better not go out with that person. That person's no good, right? Everybody can identify with that. You know, Back to the Future works because of the human element. Everybody has that moment where they say, gee, what did my parents do on their first date? How did they get together? Um, everybody understands that. It doesn't matter whether you live in <clears throat> you live in California, you live in New York, you live in uh, England, Germany, Tokyo, doesn't matter. Everybody thinks about that stuff. Um, everybody everybody has somebody they want to get revenge on, right? So yeah. <laughs> you tell a revenge story, it's always going to work, right? So that, that would be what I would suggest to people is to just, you know, explore the human condition. Look at the works that have lasted for as long as they have and ask yourself, why do they work? And I think that you'll find that at the core of all of them is some aspect of humanity, of the human condition, of what makes human beings tick. And if you can tap into that in a story that you tell, then people are going to identify with it. And, you know, the story of standing up to the bully, it's an old story, but it's a constant in the human condition. And it always works. So... Um, you can figure out a way to make a core story that always works 
look a little bit different by dressing it up in some different clothing. But as long as you got that core, uh, I think you have a better chance of succeeding. It's such it, you know, I, I, like I said, I ask this question all the time. That's probably my favorite answer because I think people get like, just when you said the way you pitched it, you guys told the story and the way you described people lighting up when they heard it from you telling Robert Zemeckis to you guys talking at the first pitch meeting at a studio. It's because I, I thought about it when you mentioned it, it's because there's a universality to it that immediately connects and that's uh, beautiful. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Again, thanks to Bob Gale for coming on the podcast. You can uh, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, head over to nofilmschool.com. We've got tons of great content, new stuff every day. Please like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think and how we're doing. You can email us at editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. We're always interested to hear your questions, concerns, and comments. Um, you know, let me know what you think about this interview and uh, Bob Gale and Back to the Future. I, I just think it, um, you know, it's one of the great movies of, of this era, of its era. It'll stand the test of time. I hope we have him back when the musical happens. Um, I loved his his insights. And again, I, I really, really appreciate that he's so careful with protecting the vision um, in its originalness and not allowing it to be retreaded in ways that take away from or dilute what they did. And the end being the end, as he said, is just a beautiful thing. Um, and it makes, you know, the other thing that, that makes it important is that it creates room for new things. Back to the Future was a new thing. And I know I'm beating a dead horse because everybody says this, but I, if you keep going back to the well, then you're filling up the space with stuff that's familiar and not allowing new stories and new filmmakers into the spotlight. And I actually think he's doing a service to all creatives when he says, no, I'm not going to let somebody just remake Back to the Future. They can make something new. Maybe I'll make Back to the Future in musical form because that's like a different medium. And he's, he's, but, but still, it's, I think it's worth remembering that that's, that's, a, that's a creation of an opportunity for all of us and for all of us to see something new. So I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.